way that we can support. York, they said in, in their fuller statement, is about standing up for people who are oppressed. It's about equal rights for everybody. And this guy has just used his position to do some very, very dubious things. He's not shown real uh, remorse uh, for what happened through his, his friendship with dubious people uh, to, 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 to women who were put in a terrible situation and whose young lives were wrecked. Therefore, whether he's guilty or whether he's incident, we, innocent, we don't like his lifestyle. And therefore, we don't want him to be given the freedom of the city. Uh, it's a long way from 1987 when he was given that freedom as part of his birthday celebrations. Uh, it, it, sorry, his wedding celebrations, actually. That was a year in which he got married, wasn't it? And uh, they thought about him quite differently from there. But over 35 years, they've watched what he's done. They've said, he's not like us. He's not behaving as we would want somebody, as a representative of this city, to behave. But they, they also said, we think he should stand down from his royal title. He should no longer be the Duke of York. And the very next morning, of course, um, Andrew went to his granddaughter's christening, driving his own green Bentley, £220,000 worth of the way. And he had it re-sprayed into royal racing green from uh, blue when he bought it, which must have cost a packet. He's got his fine space for it in his garage now, alongside the 165,000 Range Rover that's already there. But that's not the thing. As you'll notice, if you look at the number plate, it's AY03. D-O-Y. <laughs> so it looks as if he's quite unrepentant about the whole thing. But it's interesting, isn't it, when a city says, you are not one of us. You don't belong in this community. You do not behave in a way that a member of this community is supposed to behave. Philippi was an interesting place because it wasn't just another Greek city. And uh, the UNESCO World Heritage people, who try, are trying desperately to preserve the ancient sites, say, Philippi is an exceptional testimony to the incorporation of regions into the Roman Empire, as demonstrated by the city's layout and architecture, as a colony resembling a small Rome. You see, Philippi is nowhere near Rome. If you look at where it is on the map, there's the map of the ancient world, and there is Philippi. Rome is over to the, the left-hand side. Actually, Philippi is in Greece, or technically Macedonia, I suppose. But it's a Greek city. The thing is, though, that if you come to Macedonia, as Paul and his companions did as they approached the city for the first time, they'd have been walking from the seaport, which is nine miles away, along a road called the Ignatian Way. And that was one of the great trade routes of the ancient world. And as they walked along it, they'd pass all sorts of people in Greek clothes. They'd pass little Greek farms, olive groves, things like that. And as they drew nearer to Philippi, they'd hear a few people speaking Greek, but then they'd hear a different language being spoken. And by the outskirts of the city, they'd have heard almost everybody they passed speaking Latin instead. They'd have noticed, too, a little bit of difference in the clothes. Uh, there wasn't much difference between Roman clothes and Greek clothes. They both wore the same basic thing, a tunic with a sort of robe thrown over it. But Greek ones were quite different in style and in fashion. The Greeks were much more colourful than the boring Romans, um, and the Romans tended to wear much more subtle clothes, and the colour sort of must have uh, drifted out of the, the, the people that they by, and they started to think, hello, we're in a Roman city here. And as they entered Philippi, they'd have seen a forum, they'd have seen a circus, they would have seen baths, the sorts of things that you didn't see in Greek cities in those days. It was as if you'd been transplanted back into Rome. 
I went to university in Oxford, and I remember the first time that I left Oxford, which is a very distinctive city, and went to Cambridge. Now, you can do it quite fast these days, but in those days, it was, a, it was a bus that seemed to take forever to get across the face of England to get there. And I always remember uh, stepping out of the bus after hours and hours of travel away from Oxford into the station in Cambridge and thinking, it's Oxford, because the atmosphere was entirely and totally the same. And that's not really surprising when you think about it, because both cities have got the same university past. There's been a crisscrossing between them for centuries. And people who've got a job in, in Oxford have often gone on to a job in Cambridge and then come back. And the two places play off one another. So it's no surprise, really, that there is a kind of joint culture. But at the time, it seemed absolutely incredible. I've travelled all across the face of England, and here I am back in the culture I started from. Well, for a Roman coming to Philippi, it was a bit like that. Uh, there's, by the way, up, uh, up in the, uh, the top left-hand corner. Because Philippi was a Greek city originally, and then it had been planted as a Roman colony. It was where um, uh, Mark Antony and Octavian won the battle against Brutus and Cassius. If you remember Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, you know what we're talking about there. And that was what... Um, uh, meant that Rome was very firmly in charge of that area, and also Rome needed somewhere to reward the soldiers who'd fought the battle, <laughs> and others who would, would be retired from the Roman army in future. And what they did was to plant colonies in different places where they would give ground to retired soldiers and say, there you are, here's your farm. You can go off and farm it for the rest of your life. We'll pay you a small pension, but basically this is the main pension you get, this piece of land where you can settle down with your family. And it worked very well. Now, Philippi was one of the first and the biggest of those colonies. And so what you have is a town that really is trying to be a little Rome. <laughs> it's in Greece, but it's, it's full of Romans. Probably, actually, the jailer um, who got converted when Paul was first there was an ex-soldier from the Roman army. Most of the people in power in Philippi would have had very close connections to Rome. News and fashions and gossip and all sorts of things would have come putting across into, into Philippi very easily indeed because there was a great coming and going with, with, with Rome. And so the Philippians knew that they were living in Greece, but they also knew they were a colony of somewhere else. <laughs> and uh, Paul uses this when he writes to the Philippians to describe what it's like being a Christian in the world. Because you're living in a culture which is not your culture, and what you've got to do is preserve the culture of heaven, where you came from. Here's a, a map of the, the center of Philippi, and you'll see all of those things in there, the baths and the, 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 the circus, the theater, and all the rest of it. And here's a quotation from Philippians chapter 3, which we've not reached yet. And Paul warns people in chapter 3 against those who claim to be Christians profess to live within the culture of heaven and actually look like everybody else around him. And he says this, and it's, it's Christians he's talking about here, church members. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. It is, but our citizenship is in heaven. And he deliberately uses that word, which have meant so much to the Philippians. Where did he come from? Philippi. Uh, it's in Greece, you know, but my citizenship is in Rome. <laughs> it meant an awful lot to them. And Paul says, well, forget Rome. Your citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
one of the, I'm not really talking about chapter three, but one of the biggest moments in Philippian history would be when somebody came from Rome, some dignitary, some conqueror, maybe even the emperor. And what would happen would be that this emperor would, or dignity, would arrive five miles outside the city on the Ignatian Way, and then the leading citizens of Philippi would go out and meet him. And they'd come back with this dignitary who was visiting the city. The streets would be lined with all the local population, and the people who had gone out from Philippi to meet him would come back in his reflected glory. And the word used for an arrangement like that, a special day of that kind, was parousia. Interestingly, that's exactly the word that the Bible uses about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And his saints will rise to meet him in the air, and then they'll come back in his triumphal train. And so uh, Paul is using language here that the Philippians would understand. You're citizens of Philippi, but more importantly, you're citizens of heaven. And so you've got to look a bit like that. Okay, so here's, here's the passage that we've looked at already the four verses and the phrase I want us to look at particularly to start with is this one about conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ live out the culture you come from and do it properly don't go native don't be like everybody else around you in Philippi or painting or, 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 or Greece or wherever be like people who come from heaven and, and Paul says, then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you, I'll know you're doing it right, and I will know three important things about you. And when he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, yes, he uses that word again. The Greek word for city was polis, and he says here, politeiousthe, which is conduct yourselves as citizens. Live out this civic life of heaven uh, in a way that's worthy of the gospel. You see, lots of people uh, identify themselves with the gospel. And we've seen over the last three, four years, haven't we, all sorts of people who may identify themselves with the gospel but are not living in a manner worthy of it. I mean, if the gospel is the greatest news that's ever come to human beings, if the gospel has a transforming power to change people into something different, something much more beautiful than they'd ever make themselves, if the gospel is urgent news, then Christians have got to live in a way that reflects that got to be people of some urgency. They've got to be people who live in a way that reflects the fact that Jesus is coming back. They've got to be people who live in a way that shows a love and a compassion for other people that the rest of the world just doesn't show. And we've been brought up with a start over the last year, haven't we, as we've come across so many situations where we've just discovered how evil human beings can be to one another. The big example, obviously, being Ukraine, but all sorts of other things as well. What's going on in the culture of the House of Commons? People who uh, claim to be worthy of respect, people who make all sorts of promises when they're elected, and then what kind of lives are they living? What are they doing to other people? And we've, we've, we've seen so much, haven't we, in terms of uh, the Metropolitan Police, in terms of random murders here and there, to show that people, when you scratch beneath the surface, don't always live up to what they claim to be. We've seen Christian leaders who are fakes in a way that I never remember from the days of my youth. You know, when I was young, growing up in the church, you could be pretty sure that people who claimed to be Christian teachers and leaders and evangelists were people you could trust. They lived what they claimed to be, and now more and more we're seeing people exposed as fake pastors, as folks with a second life, as uh, Billy Graham's um, 
grandson, Tully Chavidjian, who'd written books about Christian marriage, found out that his wife had had an affair, and so in retaliation, he went and had an affair himself. And then he had another one, and only at that point did he lose his job in the church, the biggest church on the eastern coast of America. Having lost his job, he had to take another one with another church within two weeks' time. And the whole idea of, of saying, I was wrong, this is not what my culture is about, I have not shown the culture of heaven, I need to be healed, I need to be restored, that just doesn't happen anymore. They just bounce back in all sorts of different ways. And so what Paul is saying here, look, if you represent the gospel, do it worthily. There's something in uh, human nature that says, well, we'll do it better when we're being looked at, isn't there? And this is, this is a kind of uh, trope that you find, a meme that you find on the internet quite a bit. When your boss is coming and you need to pretend you're doing something. We all work a bit harder when we know somebody's looking at us. Um, here's another one. When the boss is coming and you have to look busy, hammer nails into the sand. I don't know what that's about, but anyhow. Uh, it's not just humans. You find it about animals as well. When your boss struts by and you try to look busy, that's a good one. Or when the boss walks by the dog and you pretend to work, but you're two hours deep in Facebook stalking. We all tend to do a bit more when we know we're being looked after. And Paul says, basically, by implication here, if I came to see you guys, I know what you'd be like. You'd be running around trying to impress me with the way that you live out the culture of heaven. <laughs> but whether I come or not, if you are living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, then I already know three things about you. Your conduct has to be worthy of the gospel. Imagine somebody coming to Paul saying, I've just come back from Philippi, had a nice weekend. And Paul says, oh, yes, really? And how are they getting on? Oh, fine, yeah, the church is, is living a life that um, uh, demonstrates conduct that's worthy of the gospel. It's really quite good. And Paul says, yeah, well, that's interesting. I know three things about them already. And his friend said, well, how, how do you mean? I've told you yet. He said, no, no, I, I know already that they're standing firm in one spirit. Uh, yes, they are. How did you know that? Oh, it's easy. And, and the second thing is, I'll bet they're contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, aren't they? And his friend said, yes, actually they are. That's a good way of putting it. I couldn't have put it better myself. Well, you really know a staggering amount about the Philippians. And Paul said, no, that's not all. There's another thing as well. I'm pretty sure that they're not frightened by their opponents at all. That's staggering. How did you work all of that out? And Paul says here in this verse, doesn't he, if I know that you are conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, then whether I come and see you or whether I don't, doesn't make any odds, I will know that one, you stand firm in one spirit, two, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, and three, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Because if you live the lifestyle you're supposed to, if you put Jesus at the center of your life, if you spend each day developing the fruit of the Spirit and allowing that to grow in your life, if you make your choices based on what would Jesus do, if you do all the things you're supposed to do, then these three things, he says, are going to be true about you. And so he says, if we are living this kind of lifestyle, then three things are going to be true. First of all, you could say, no displacement. You won't be moved. You'll be able to stand firm. You won't change your position whatsoever. I think of um, Rob Bell. A few years ago, the pastor of a, a, a very large and growing megachurch and a preacher of the gospel. And somebody who changed his position theologically on one or two things because, well, I think he just wanted to please people. He then wrote a couple of books which seemed a long way off from his earlier convictions. Now, what's he doing? He's given up evangelism. He's given up church leadership. He's more or less got a job as a, a lifestyle advisor to people who may or may not be Christians. 
He's just gradually moved from where he was, where he's doing a massive and important job for the kingdom of God, into just making money, keeping himself in the news, making himself a celebrity, but not doing what he was called to do. Now, there may be other sides to the story. I don't know Rob Bell, but certainly in his written pronouncements, you see a man who seems to have shifted massively from the gospel he once stood for and worked for to something quite different. And Paul says, if you're living a life in which your conduct is worthy of the gospel, there'll be no displacement. You will stand. And do you remember Philippi, eh, Philippians, Ephesians, the last book we looked at? That's how it finishes, isn't it? Put on the whole armor of God, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, so that having done all, you will stand. Sit, walk, stand. That's the message of Ephesians. And what we're called to do is to stand firm in the same place with one another. So no displacement. Second thing is no disunity. Contending as one man or one human, if you prefer it, ladies, because the word used for man here in our translations doesn't necessarily mean man. It's the word andros, which means man or woman. <laughs> so contending as one human being for the faith of the gospel. Um, so no disunity. We fight together. We don't spend all of our time on the internet sniping at one another. We don't make snarky uh, Twitter comments about churches that we don't quite agree with. We don't put all of our time in uh, writing pamphlets against one another. We work for what is important and we recognize in one another things that only the Spirit of God could have put there and we rejoice in that. And the third thing, well, I've called this no discouragement because Paul says you do all of this and you're not discouraged by your opponents. So you keep on going, whatever they say and whatever they do. So basically that's it. Uh, this, this, I think, is what our passage is talking about. Let's just look at those three, though, very, very, very quickly, uh, each one of them. No displacement. Paul says, stand. I will know that you stand. And the tense he uses is the present continuous tense, which really means, I will know that you keep on standing. It's no problem to stand for five minutes, <laughs> but to keep on standing, and that takes a bit more out of you. Um, and to keep going is the difficult thing. But Paul says, if you're living that lifestyle, if you're doing all of the things that the New Testament says you have to do, if you are following out that form of teaching which you have been entrusted, if you're awake this morning, um, if you're doing all of that, then you will stand. Nobody will be able to shake you, and you'll be able to stand. And he says two things about it. Keep on standing, first of all, firm. <laughs> Don't wobble. You won't have to wobble. You'll know where you are because the experience of Jesus and his love and his reality and his direction and his guidance will be there in your life day to day, gradually growing into more and more of a real experience. And the more you get to know Jesus and the more you allow him to be part of your life and to make the decisions for you, the firmer you will be able to stand until you reach a point where they're just not going to knock you over. I remember when I was 16, having to go to visit an old man in our church called Mr. Hunter. And Mr. Hunter was one of these great saints of God who'd been around for about 500 years. And I'd really had nothing much to do with him until he got quite, quite, quite poorly and couldn't come out to the church services anymore. I, went, I was sent to visit him as a teenager. Well, I suppose I better do this, and if I do this, then I won't have to see him again for another six months, so fair enough. And I ended up going week after week because he just fascinated me. He was somebody who was at the other end of Christian experience from where I was. I'd only been a Christian about a year or so at this time, I guess. And this guy had walked with God for years and years and years. I don't think he ever realized it, but what he did for my growing faith was just immense. 
because I saw somebody who was standing firm, had stood firm for ages, had learned by experience that you can stand firm and you won't be knocked over. And that ex experience was important to me. So he's one standing firmly, and he says, in one spirit. Now, we don't really know whether this means in one spirit together, so you see things from the same point of view, or whether it means in the one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Uh, confusingly, um, when you look at different uh, versions of the new international version, you find that the NIV changes its mind from, from revision to revision about this thing. So the first NIV I looked at said, in one spirit, with a capital S, meaning the Holy Spirit, and the next one said, no, and it means in, in one spirit, the same spirit as one another. Nobody really knows. It could mean either. And my guess is, because Paul was good at this kind of thing, he meant both. Paul would often use a phrase to mean two things at the same time. I mean, Galatians 2.20, do you remember that? The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. But it can also mean I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Which one do you mean, Paul? Speak clearly. Oh, both of them. Both true, aren't they? I think the same thing's going on here. One spirit. But if we're going to be in one spirit with the same attitude, the same mind, same priorities, the same agenda, that's only going to come from one place, isn't it? That's going to come from the Holy Spirit. If you and I agree sufficiently to carry through a project as big as taking the gospel to the world, that is an absolute miracle unless God does it. Because we're so different from one another, aren't we? But when God's Holy Spirit is at work in your heart and my heart and the, the, the heart of the only three rows back and, and all the rest of it, then we can work together in a way that the world just can never understand. And what Jesus says will come true. By this shall all men know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. So standing firm in one spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit. I think Paul intends a lot. And that takes us on to the second thing, doesn't it? No disunity. Because after the first phrase, he says, the next thing that happens is, you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And that word contending is a word that's used of athletic endeavor, of putting all of your energy into making it happen. And Paul is concerned that they contend for the faith of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, it means the whole body of everything Jesus had to tell us. It means the whole of God's revelation contend for it that means contend that people will understand it take it out there where people can see it and make sense of it and marvel at it it also means don't allow it to be distorted don't let people twist it and uh, and say sneering things about it that cheap and, uh, and drag it down it means uh, contending for the truth of it look at my life look what it's done for me it can do the same for you it means championing the gospel in any way you can when um, my old employers, World Evangelical Fellowship, finally started back in 1951. They had a meeting in Lausanne to work out how, what sort of constitution should they have and what kind of statement should they make to the evangelical world to show them that here was a linking body for all Bible-believing churches throughout the world. And people came up with all sorts of fancy formulations of words. And it was John Stoss in Britain who said, well, you know, in Philippians chapter 1, there are three little phrases about the gospel. He said, I don't think we could do better than those. <laughs> and one of those, obviously, you can find the other two if you look at the chapter later on. But one of them was contending for the faith of the gospel. And as soon as Stott said that, and he's very deprecating, I don't know if it's a good idea or not, but I, I just thought of this. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's great. That's amazing. 
And that is what it's all about, isn't it? And it was a great statement for an international body linking Christians of every possible stripe together, contending for the faith of the gospel. That's what it's all about. And Paul says, if you are living in the culture of heaven, you will put your effort into that. So, contending for the faith of the gospel. And he says, uh, that means no disunity between us. It means we contend as one man. You know, we, we, we're so united. And Christian disunity has, down through the centuries, been one of the, the, the terrible things that's hampered Christian witness again and again. It was starting to happen in Philippians, as we will see in further chapters. And Paul was terrified that something great and beautiful, which had started through his night in prison, was going to stop there unless uh, the Christians came together again. Why were they falling out? Well, there were all sorts of things. First of all, there were racial differences in Philippians, in Philippi. And I can well imagine that the difference between Greek people and these incomers, these grockles who'd been given a patch of land by the emperor and had settled down as if they owned the place, well, that was a constant cause of friction. There were cultural differences. Do you wear your toga the Roman way or are you a real Greek? You know? There were all of those cultural differences in there as well. There were misunderstandings too. Yodia and Syntyche who'd worked hard alongside Paul for the sake of the gospel. Something had happened and we're not sure what it is, but it meant those two ladies were not talking to one another anymore. And Paul even calls them out by name later on in the letter, doesn't he? Because it's just so unnecessary. Some misunderstanding of some kind has grown up between them and it's just caused a split. There are theological differences too. There are people who are, who are uh, trying to bring in all sorts of Jewish ideas. And I don't know about brother so-and-so. He's been listening to the wrong stuff. I don't know. He's maybe. I, I, and so theological differences start to appear in the church as well, if you're not careful. Waning enthusiasm. There are people who are being tempted to be like the folks in chapter 3, whose God is their belly, who are living for what they want, who are, who are just thinking, I've paid my dues. I've done my stuff. Somebody else can carry the can from now on. I remember Billy Strachan, <laughs> uh, an old comedian uh, preacher, talking about that once when he said, you know, I meet so many people who say, well, you know, I've labored in the Lord's vineyard for many years. I've been the mainstay of the children's work in this church. And it's just about worn me out. I think it's time for me now to pass it on to somebody younger and let them do it. How old are you? 25. <laughs> and it can't be that way, can't it? We give up too easily. We pass the burden on because our enthusiasm started to wane. There's pride as well. There's all sorts of other things, personal agenda. All of these were at work in Philippi, as they are at work in every Christian church, including this one, I guess. And all of those things have the potential to drive us apart unless we realize that our primary responsibility is to contend as one human <laughs> for the sake of the gospel. Okay, one more thing and we're done. No discouragement. Because Paul says, if those two things that we've already mentioned are true about you, you're standing firm and you're contending for the faith of the gospel, then the third thing will be true as well. You won't be scared by anybody. There will be no discouragement because your feet are planted in heaven, because you have your, your, your title of membership there, because you live in that culture, you are going to be people who nobody can put off. And he says uh, some things here that uh, would turn what they might have been thinking upside down. First of all, he says, when you're brave, that's not a sign of defeat, but a sign of victory. He says, you know, uh, when you those people who you're up against, those enemies of yours who stand against you, your adversaries in Philippi, they seem so confident 
so fluent in what they have to say, so dismissive, so despising of everything you believe. You might think, oh, you know, how can I stand up against them? They just look at me and they sneer. And, oh, we'll have you on toast in five minutes. Don't think that way. They're more scared than they appear. Your very confidence, your calm statement. Like, I've had this experience. I know that Jesus is real. I know that God is in charge of my life. I know he's changed me as a person. That is getting through more than you would think. And they can put on a brave front. What's happening is not a sign of your coming defeat. It's a sign of victory. You're getting through. And to them, says Paul, it's a sign of condemnation. They're on the wrong side. And they're impressed with you and they're starting to realize it. And they begin to realize that what's happening could well end in your victory. And he uses the word soter, salvation. You are going to emerge triumphant at the end of this whole thing. And often that's true, you know. The world is more impressed by us, we sometimes think. I remember the first time I went on the, an operation mobilization at summer mission, knocking on doors in Swindon, which is something I just do not like doing, but still, I did it. And uh, I remember going along one street and knocking on the door, and uh, the door was answered by an old lady. And uh, I explained what I was there for, and she said, well, I'm not really interested, dear, I'm not very religious, but you, you come in and I'll make you a cup of tea and I'll tell you all about my family. Oh, I don't really have time for this, but there was nothing. I went in, she made me a cup of tea, and she started showing me her photograph albums. And that woman had a lot of photograph albums. <laughs> and after five minutes, I was praying earnestly, Lord, how do I get out of here before midnight? And uh, I, I kept on trying to turn the conversation around, and, and I got a chance to talk here and there about Jesus and how amazing it was. And uh, oh, it's, such, it's so good what you're doing, dear. I'm, I'm sure it's very good. No, well, it's not really. It's just that Jesus has changed my life. And, and uh, I remember she was going on and on and on about her family. I was thinking, this is desperate. This is awful. It's been half an hour already. And suddenly, to my consternation, because I was only about 18 or 19, she burst into tears right there in front of me. And she said, son, I am so lonely. Can your Jesus do anything to help me? Because I really feel life is not worth living. Ha! Two minutes ago, you were talking about your daughter in Australia and your grandchildren, what a delight they are, and so on. And the whole thing was a front. And you were listening all the time, though. I didn't think you were. And you were putting up a front, and that front has just collapsed. And it taught me an important lesson then, that if you look at what people's performance tells you, <laughs> you may get the wrong impression about them completely. And Paul says, when, when you're brave, when you stand up against your adversaries and say, no, I believe in Jesus, it's not a sign of defeat, it's a sign of victory. And to opponents... It doesn't mean winning, it means warning. You're on the wrong side. You need to change. You need to get what these people have got. Third thing he says, I think, is when you have to suffer, that's not a dissenter. It's a privilege. Remember how your church started with me and Silas singing hymns in jail. And it wasn't a very comfortable experience. They didn't put us in a five-star apartment that night. And they did a few things to us first that meant we couldn't get to sleep anyway. So we had to sing hymns. You know, it was too painful. And uh, he said, remember what, how that started? And you honor me because of what I went through then. When you go through the same thing, that does not mean that God has abandoned you somehow. It means he's picked you out for special honor. And you have been given a great privilege. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, there are Christians all over the place doing that, but also to suffer for him and not Everybody gets that honor. When you're suffering, that is not a dishonor. It's an absolute privilege. It's not a unique calamity. It's a shared honor.
And the rest of the New Testament makes that point again and again, doesn't it? Remember 1 Peter chapter 4? Peter's writing to a bunch of people in Turkey who aren't under persecution yet, but it's coming their way. Peter's in Rome. He can see the way the Roman Empire is going. And he knows these people are going to go through fiery trials. And he says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange, he says. It's what the people of God can expect. At least the people whom God can trust with that sort of testing. You wouldn't get it if God wasn't honouring you. James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, says James, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because it's good for you. What it forges in you, what it builds in your character, you will never get from anywhere else. Testing of your faith, perseverance. Perseverance, finishing its work, you become mature and complete, not lacking anything. When I think of mature Christians whom I've known, I think of people like Henrik Vieja, who stood out against the communist regime in Poland, who had a police car parked at the end of his road outside his house every day for five years, just as a warning. I think of Jerzy Albrecht, uh, architect in Hungary who bought a house up on the hillside in 1956 just after the Russians had come in and changed everything. And he built that there so that um, he could take young people secretly on the hillside, conduct Bible studies with them. And he took me, showed me the basement in his house, which had a false floor. And down in the basement, the place where they used to study the Bible for hours on end and then put everything away in, in two minutes if they saw somebody coming up the hill towards the house. I think of people like Caesar Molibatsi in South Africa, a big bear of a man with a, a, a permanent limp because some crazed white policeman who didn't like little black boys had destroyed his leg when he was very young. He'd grown up with an incredible hatred of whites until an old white missionary had taken him and said, you know, Caesar, God loves you and I love you too. And across that crazy racial divide, he'd come to know Jesus Christ. When I met him, he was working amongst young people in South Africa to bring blacks and whites together under the gospel, under the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And people like that, I've met and I've seen in them a maturity and a completeness I don't see in myself or in so many other Western Christians. Persecution does something for you. Jesus said it himself, didn't he? Remember the word I said to you, he says in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so we can expect it. If we're real followers of Jesus Christ, that will be part of the deal before we get back home to the culture that we come from. Acts chapter 5, right at the start of the church's experience. Do you remember? They're hauled in by the Sanhedrin. And uh, at the end of chapter 5, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. It's right there from the very start of the Christian church. Persecution is part of the deal, and when it comes, it is an honor. So that's really it. Paul doesn't specify what a manner worthy of the, the gospel is, because we know that. We get it all over the New Testament in all sorts of ways. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's evangelism. It's living a life that's full of honesty and integrity. It's a life that's lived in closeness to God. He know, you know all of those things. But he says if you live that kind of life, three things will stick out. One, no displacement. You will stand. Two, no disunity. You'll be united with your brothers and sisters. And three, no desperation, no dismay, <laughs> no uh, discouragement, because you will stand firm in the face of the fiercest opposition. I guess things are not going to get easier for Christians in this country for quite some time to come. We need to be like that.
Just before I hand over to Richard, let's pray very briefly. Heavenly Father, it's amazing how much of a belt and a challenge we can get out of just four verses. Your word kicks us again and again and again. And as we read those simple words that Paul wrote to the Philippians, probably in a hurry, all of those centuries ago, we thank you for the way in which they resound down through the centuries and still echo into our lives and our culture today to challenge us about who we are and who we should be. Help us to apply what Paul said to ourselves so that this church can be strong, so that our lives can be strong, so that other people can find you, so that this country can change, and so that more than anything else, you can be glorified. We ask it for your namesake.